You ready to hear from uh, the word this morning? Yeah, okay. Um, I think God's got something for us, okay? Uh, he's been talking to me about this during the week, and I, well, over the last couple of weeks, I'm very excited. Um, this morning, uh, as you can see, I'm going to be speaking further on this, uh, this year's theme. It's uh, Grow, and um, we'll be looking at the fourth presentation that uh, I, I, I have in the series of LifeGate's core beliefs. Yes, we're only up to four and I've been going all year. It's because there's other things that I have been preaching on. Um, who can remember the first one? I'm doing this because there's new people here since we preached on them. Who can remember the first one? What? Bible. Someone say it. Apart from Nathan saying it. That's right. The Bible is the living words of God, infallible as originally given, and the supreme authority in all Christian doctrine and lifestyle. And that's where we start. We start from the Bible. Now, to you who are new, to find where we get these beliefs recorded, you go to our webpage. There it is there. And if you go up to About Us, just there, click on that, and you go down, you will find our core beliefs. Um, who can remember the second one that we talked about? Can you read it? Here it is. I'll make it larger for you. Believe in one eternal God who is the creator of all things. He exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Trinity. That's the second one. Now, the last time I preached, who did I preach on? No, oh, well, that's right. I did preach on the Holy Spirit because that was Father's Day. But the last core belief was God the Father. So I'm actually preaching through God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's the next one. Today is all about Jesus, God the Son. Now, I'm going to be talking about God the Son, but I want to look at him from his person, okay, not so much his works. So I want to talk to him, to us today about his being more than his doing, okay, because you, can, you, can, uh, you can't divide him. He, what he is is what he does. But for time, because I'll get the card saying you've got to finish up in three minutes, and uh, I, I need to move on. So I'm going to break this up. I'm just going to look at him as his being this morning, okay? Um, we'll take a closer look at his works in a couple of weeks' time. So here's my heading for today. Jesus, God's ideal man, man's ideal God. I think that kind of sums it up quite completely. That's who Jesus is. God's ideal man, man's ideal God. Um, let me tell you a little bit about my introduction to Jesus. Um, my, my parents were believers in God, so they weren't agnostic or atheists. But, and my mum kind of went to this little church down in Guymere. It was a little uh, congregational church. And I didn't really like it. But one of my things my dad made me do, and I don't think I ever, we didn't used to say, we never said grace or anything like that, but they used to get me to say this prayer at night. And I can remember saying this as a very young child. With my brothers. I've got an older brother and a young brother. And this is how the prayer went. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child, pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee. I had to say that every night on my knees next to the bed. I had no clue what I was saying. And in fact, it kind of gave me the wrong understanding of who Jesus really was. Now, just to let you know, this is actually a hymn, the first line of a hymn from Charles Wesley. So I'm sure he got his theology right, 
But as a five, six, seven-year-old, I had no clue. Gentle Jesus. Really? As a five, six, seven-year-old, I didn't want no gentle person. I mean, I was the kid. I lived next to the National Park. I used to go hunting frogs and tadpoles. Lizards. I had 12 lizards in a big cage in my backyard. I had a big water dragon this big. I used to climb trees and collect eggs out of nests. Yeah, that's what you did back in the 60s, didn't you? Put a hole on the other end, blow it out, and you'd had an egg. That was life. I don't know if gentle Jesus, meek and mild, would have done this. Meek and mild? That's the Jesus that I'm praying to? I just didn't get it. Look upon this little child. I was a big kid. Why does he think I'm so little? My brothers were the skinny, scrawny ones. I was the big one. Pity my simplicity. I mean, is he saying I'm simple? Pity me? Why has he got to pity me and suffer me to come to thee? He doesn't want me anyway. He's suffering for me to come to him. Well, what's thee anyway? I never used that word. It just did not make sense. But every night I had to get down and say it. And I just went, who is this Jesus that they talk about? And then when, if I did go to church, I'd have pictures like this. What's that? Look at the part down the middle. Beautiful. And he's carrying a little tiny lamb. And look at his nice soft hands. Where's that rugged bloke that would climb a tree with me? He's not there. And these pictures seem to be all over the church. And I just did not understand who this Jesus was. Uh, it, it was very, very confusing. In fact, to me, Jesus was quite a wimp. Sorry to say that. You've got to understand, I wasn't a Christian, and the way the church portrayed him, my praying, my, those pictures just did not win me over at all. I got to 13 and got into high school, 12, 13, and I went to a place called Teen Ranch. Now, that was a, a youth camp, and the leaders there, and we all had a cabin leader. You could do that back then. Uh, you had a cabin leader. These guys were in their 20s, nearly 1920s. And it blew me away that these guys were quite buff and strong and muscly. You know, we could play volleyball and football and we'd go canoeing and horse riding. And then there were these girls that were leaders as well. Now, at 13, I thought you had to kind of look really wimpy and the girls were ugly. You believe in, the, in this Jesus, you've got to be ugly. That was my thinking at 13. I had no clue who this God was. And yet the girls at this teen ranch were actually good looking. Now I'm 13 and they're 19. Of course, the 13-year-old's probably going to think that. But I thought, and, and this is where I started to change. I started to think, maybe this Jesus that I've been told about and I've seen in pictures like this is not the Jesus I actually know. Because these guys and girls talked about this Jesus and had this relationship as if he was real and, he, and they were fair thinking about him. And I went, I've had this all wrong. I think this Jesus, from my understanding, has been completely, you know, wrong. And so I started to change. And in fact, it was a teen ranch that I did become a Christian a couple of years later. It took me three years to actually figure it out. Because Jesus truly is God's ideal man and man's ideal God. And that's who I've come to know over the years. And I want to talk to you about him today. So what do I mean by this? Well, here are some verses that revealed to us Jesus. First of all, and you can't go past this, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that Word, capital W, is the logos, is, is the voice, the breath, the sound, the one that brought creation into being. In the beginning was the Word, and that Word is speaking about Jesus. John goes on to talk about him. I'll show you a verse in a minute. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So Jesus was with God, and in fact he says the Word was God. The Word was God. Now, you don't read that in the Jehovah's Witness New World Translation. You'll find that it says the Word is a God. But I'll tell you what, in the Greek it's very clear that this Word was God. Paul tells us, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. This Word that was before all time and was God himself at the right time when God chose, came into this world and was born of a woman. And John goes on to tell us that the word became flesh and he dwelt amongst us. So all of a sudden, this God that's beyond us, that creates the world, that that speaks the world into existence, comes down and is born of flesh and lives amongst us. And that was 2,000 years ago, wasn't it? And so we have Jesus as a representative before us, revealing to us God. History reveals for us that Jesus was a real person who existed in time. And there's no doubt about that. History cannot deny that Jesus existed. But who do we actually say Jesus is? That's the big point. Okay? But we're told even more. And I'd like to make this statement. First of all is this. That Jesus became, at the same time, and in the complete sense, the perfect God-man. And this is what the Bible teaches us. He became, at the same time and in the complete sense, the perfect God-man. Now, there are many verses that revealed to us his 100% man. And these are some of them. He was born. Okay, you and I are all born. Yet, we're told, he had no sin. So he's a man that's born of flesh, but he had no sin. And that's because the Holy Spirit was involved in that, in using Mary as that vessel to bring God into this world. But we're told he grew, and he had a trade as a carpenter, which... I don't know why they paint his hands nice and clean. You shake most carpenters' hands and they're a bit rough. He had a trade as a carpenter and he grew up with at least six half-brothers and sisters in his home. Now, that would have been hard, wouldn't it? The eldest of having six other brothers and sisters. He grew tired. He got thirsty thirsty and hungry. He showed emotion. He wept. He sighed. His soul became troubled. He became physically weak and he died. And he had a real human body after his resurrection when he got back up again. So all this shows us that he was man in flesh. But the word teaches us that he was 100% man. He was holy and perfect in the flesh. But can I also say Apart from Jesus at the same time and in the complete sense, the perfect God-man, in becoming human, 
through laying aside his divinity, in no sense did he lay aside his godliness. Okay? Just let that sink in. So even though he laid aside his divinity, and we saw all those things in his, in his humanity, no way did he lay aside his godliness. Let me show you a couple of verses for that, and there's many. He was born of a virgin. Now, I don't think there's many of us here that could say that. He was born of a virgin. He walked on water. He raised the dead. He turned water into wine. It was his first miracle at Cana. He physically healed many and he cast out demons. He turned a few loaves of bread and fish into feeding 5,000 people. He calmed the storm. He controlled nature. And he rose from the dead himself. So we read all those verses about him being 100% man and he gets tired and weak and, and uh, hungry and thirsty. And we read all these verses about him being divine because in his humanity he does all these amazing miracles. So he's the 100% man and 100% God. Now this reality about Jesus, this, these points, reveal to us who he truly is. And that's why I'm just looking at his person today, his being. The reality about Jesus caused a lot of problems um, in the years after that he rose from the dead and, and when he went back to heaven. And I've just got this list up here to show you because the church really struggled with trying to understand who this Jesus was. Because at 33, when he leaves and goes back up to heaven, he gives the, uh, the call to his disciples to go out into all the world. But all these other teachings started to come up because they couldn't figure him out. They had a problem, and maybe you're trying to figure this out too. How can he be 100% man, 100% God? And this is what happened. In 70 AD, the Docetics arose. They denied Christ had a human body. They said, oh, he's 100% man, but really it mustn't be a human body. It must be a divine body. Well, actually, it says Jesus came in the flesh. And the end of the Bible, if you get to 1 John, you'll actually read in 1 John, and to John, John actually has to tell us, because he was writing against these uh, guys in the 70 AD, and he says Jesus came in the flesh. And he says it a few times. That's why John actually writes 1, 2, and 3 John, to um, refute what the ascetics had to teach. Then there was the Ebionites in 107 AD. They held that Christ was, really, was merely a man. There was no divinity in him at all. He was just an amazing bloke. In the Arians in 256 AD, AD said he was more than man, but he was less than God. So, you know, he, he, he was really good, but just below. The Apollinarians in 310 AD denied that Christ had a human mind or spirit. So he had the body, but he really had a God mind, not a man mind. Okay? Now I'm going to explain this a bit more. The Nestorians in 428 AD denied the union of the human and the divine natures in Christ's person. They said the two can't come together. They've got to be separate. But we say he is 100% God, 100% man, together at the same time. And then the, you, you, I can't even say those. In 448 AD, he only had a divine nature as the human was absorbed into it. You know, like you put cordial into water, it gets sucked up and you don't, kind of don't see it. Okay? 
So the early church is really struggling to figure out who this Jesus is. I mean, nearly right through to 500 AD. So what had to happen was church councils arose. And I don't know if you've heard about church councils, but these were set up by the church, which was the Catholic church then. It was the only church around, the Catholic church. And these councils in 325 in Nicaea and 381 in Constantinople and 431 in Ephesus and 451 in Chalcedon, these councils came together to try and put together the truth. And it was out of these councils that sometimes went on for 30, 35 years trying to figure it out and write it down. But there's some of the great creeds that we actually have today. And if you've ever looked in the back of an Anglican prayer book, you'll find the, 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 the creeds that are, of, that are being written and recorded for us. You can find them on the web. Because godly men had to sit down and work out what the heresies were being said and refute those heresies. Today we still have these beliefs with us and you have to talk to a Jehovah's Witness. They believe that he's only a God. He's not truly human. I mean, not truly divine. He's an a God. He's not the God. Mormons are exactly the same. And there's other um, sects that believe this. So the J-dubs and the Mormons are really no different than um, than some of these groups here. They just carry on. Um. I think the reason people struggle to comprehend the God-man Jesus is because they try to figure him out from their own human perspective. You see, you and I have a struggle to figure out God because we are not God. And that's why we get ourselves... Sorry, let me go back. That's why we get ourselves into these problems. Because we go, God must be like me. And that's where we fall down, okay? We can't do that. Where the Bible um, clearly reveals to us these things about Jesus, and you'll say that this way. Is it John 10? Yeah, there it is. John 10, 30. Jesus said, I and, I and the Father are one. Jesus and God are one. And yet you read this, Luke 2, 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God a man. Okay, so if he's 100% man, how does he increase? Is he now 110%? Well, you see, Jesus came into this world and like you and I, he had to learn. He was a baby that was zero and had to get through to 33. And just like you and I, there's a process of growing. Jesus had to do that. For him to experience humanness, that's what he had to do. But at no time was he not the Father and him being one. And that's the truth that we must realise. And therefore, if you can think about it like this, that I cannot figure God out, that he is beyond me, that he is God, and if I could actually could figure him out, I'd be God, then you don't have a problem. Because I'm not God and I don't understand him. One day I'm going to stand in front of him and I'll have a greater understanding. That's when I'll be 100% pure and holy and perfect, but will it enable me to understand him? That's what he will do. That's when I get into his presence. You and I have only experienced one mind, and we simply cannot fathom what it would be like 
for one person to have both a human and a divine mind at the same time. But there are many verses that reveal this complicated truth, and I want to show you some. Now, here's an amazing verse. Realise this. This is Jesus speaking about when he returns. Now, concerning that day or that hour when he returns, and he's saying this to his disciples, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So here's Jesus saying, I don't know when I'm coming back again. What was the verse before it? I and the Father are one. Uh, Shouldn't you know that if you're the Father? But he says, no one knows, not even me. So how do we work that out? What does that mean? How do we juggle that and and try and uh, figure that out? Well, some people, because of that verse, will ask this question. If Jesus is truly God and God knows everything, how can Jesus not know when his own second coming will be? Isn't that a good question? I'm sure you're all sitting there going, I don't want to ask that, I want to ask that. (laughs) What is the answer? Okay. A verse like this sounds difficult at first glance, but really I think it is a wonderful confirmation of who Jesus really is in his full humanity. Because if we understand that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human at the same time, we can understand this. This is how I can say it. He is both an infinite, or he has both an infinite divine mind, at the same time, a finite human mind. At the same time. This verse says, now concerning that day, no one knows, not even the Son. The reason he can say this is because he is genuinely human and finite. At the same time, He is also infinite and divine. Now, think about a finite mind. You know what I mean by that? Finite has limitations, infinite has none. God is infinite. You and I are finite. We have a certain set of boundaries that you and I can work in. Now, you and I, because we have this set of boundaries, do not have omniscience. Do you know what that means? Omnipresence, which is knowledge. We don't have all knowledge. God has all knowledge. God is omniscient. You and I aren't. So Jesus in his humanity, living with a finite mind as a human, does not have all the knowledge because he's bound by the finiteness. He is not omniscient as human, but he is as divine. Okay? He is generally human and finite. Yet at the same time, it's said of Jesus doing this, all things will be handed over to me by the Father, all things. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see, the very reason that we are told this is because he is divine and is infinite in all his knowledge. I believe this is really another one of those paradoxes that we talk about. We read about in the Bible. You know what I mean by paradox? You know where Jesus says to truly live is to die to yourself? That's that's what you and I are asked to do. To truly live, I want that, okay, then die to yourself. That's a paradox. We've got to do that. 
And this is one of the paradoxes, I think, of God that constantly come up in the Bible because we try and ascend to God through our humanity, which is finite. He can be truly human and can be truly divine at the same time. In fact, just doing this, I think, is wrong. It's God. Because what I'm saying, he's separate. But I don't know any other way to... This is God, okay? Divine, human. He is one. That's what the Bible teaches. So let me say it this way. It reveals to us that Jesus both knew all things as God but didn't know all things as man. Have a think about it. A verse that we've just looked, those two verses, reveals to us that Jesus both knew all things as God but didn't know all things as man. So it points throughout the Gospels when you're reading it, you will know that Jesus doesn't know things. It's interesting that he'll walk up and he'll, and, and I mean, he says to the boys, let's feed the people on the hill. And they go, how are we going to do this? He said, well, what have you got? Well, he knows exactly what's out there. If he wants to call upon that, he's God. But he chooses not to. He says, boys, go out and find out what's out there. And they come back with the fish and bread. So then he participates, you see. At points, Jesus will become and work out of the humanity of who he is. And at other points, he'll work out of his divinity. So he will walk on water when he wants to catch up to them in the boat. It's not hurting one. He says, I'll just catch up. I will stop the storm when I have to because the boys are freaking out in the boat and I'll show them who I am. But before that happened, you'll notice he was asleep on a cushion in the front of the boat. Why is that? Does God have to sleep? No, Jesus in his humanity has to sleep, in his finiteness. And you know what? He finds a pillow. I love Mark when he says that. I've got to have a pillow for my head. I'm just going to catch a nap in the front, in the midst of the storm. For the unique, two-natured, yet singular person of Christ, this is no contradiction. This is no contradiction. But instead, I believe it's a unique glory of the God-man. So let me, I've got a couple of minutes, I'm going to close. What's the outcome of all this for us? Because really this truth, I think, is immense. If you can come to the bottom of this, which, by the way, is near impossible because it, if you're like me, it gets to a point in my head and I go, this doesn't compute. I just don't get it. And God says, good, it's called faith right there. It's called faith. You've got to believe me that that's who I say I am, even though you cannot understand me. And by the way, if you understood me, you'd be God, so you're never going to get there, so don't hassle yourself. Are you going to have faith in who I am? And this is what he does for us. If he was not man, then we would not have someone who had both experienced life and understood it as we do. If he was not 100% man, we would not have someone who had both experienced life and understood it as we do. That's so important. Because you read a verse like this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man the man Jesus Christ. Now, a mediator, you know what that is, don't you? A go-between. Someone that can represent you to the other and represent the other to you. We have them in all across our society. In some sense, a counsellor. 
you know, when you go in uh, to councillor, or we have mediators within our unions that will represent the, the, the people to the bosses. Mediation is often a term we talk about. There is the man Jesus Christ, our mediator. Why can he be our mediator? Because he can say to the Heavenly Father, I know exactly what it's like to be tempted. I know it's exactly what it's like for Ken to go through this, for Ken to experience this, because he's experienced it. And so as a mediator, Jesus can take us into God's presence and in some sense bring God to us, can't he? And that's the spirit within us that mediates also for us. Jesus can understand our humanness and relate to it, knowing all that we are going through. He can then represent us before our Heavenly Father. He knows what we're up against. Look at this. This is our mediator. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Isn't that wonderful that we don't have a high priest like Mel was talking about that just goes in, you know, sacrifices the lamb, comes out. And really the high priest, and sometimes I get this sense, people kind of as a pastor hold me up as if I'm, I'm better than they are. And, and, and sometimes it hurts me because I'm going, we're all priests. It's in fact what Peter says. We are believer priests if you read 1 Peter. So I am no different than you. I might have the gift of pastoring. I might be able to pastor, but we are all priests. But the writer, he says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He can. He knows what it's like. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't that amazing? There is suffering in temptation. Now, remember, temptation's not sin. Jesus was tempted all the time. He was a human on earth. Yes, so I kind of go, well, what was he tempted with? Well, I think he was tempted with lust, with anger, with all the, the, the list, gluttony, I don't know, all of this. There's no doubt. He says in every respect, so that means he's got to go through everything I go through, but without sin. Temptation's not sin, but there is a suffering that comes from it and he knows exactly what it's like. That's why he says, call out to me. I am divine and human. I can experience, I have experienced and I can deal with it. That's what he wants for us. Okay? Because he was 100% man, he knows what we go through. So let me say it this way. It's all up to us to call out to him for this help and strength to get us through this life at all levels. But secondly, because he was 100% God, he enables us to have our sins removed and live as God originally attended for us. He's 100% man, so he knows what we've been tempted with, but he's 100% God who can take away our sin because it was only the perfect lamb that could die for us. And this is what Mel was getting at, I think, when she was sharing her communion. We have one that has gone before us, but one who has died on the cross, who has paid the price for us. So yes, you and I are not absolutely holy, and we can't be. 
but we have one who is absolutely holy that stands in our place. And that's the next sermon in two times. In two times to come. I'm going to look at the Holy Spirit next and then we'll look at Jesus' works and we'll have a look. In fact, there's his first here. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters, by the way, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the services of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There's a good word. Do you use that word propitiation much? All the time. That's good. People think of swearing if you use that. Don't you? Propitiation. What does that mean? Payment. Payment. That's really what it's all about. To make payment for the sins of the people. That's a great verse, isn't it? He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He is the pure one that goes into the presence of God, our mediator, and God says, I need a sacrifice, and he says, I am that payment of your sin. I will lay down my life for mine and your sin, and he dies in our place. That's the payment. That's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. So let me sum it up for you. Jesus, Jesus' full godliness and complete humanity are both essential to his work on the cross for our salvation and our ability to live life to the full in this world. That's in a nutshell. If I could package it for you, Jesus' full godliness And his complete humanity are both essential to his work on the cross for our salvation. He had to be God. And our ability to live life full to this world. He had to be human. Because of these reasons. If he were not man, then he could not die. If he was not man, he could not die. God cannot die. Because God is holy. God is pure. Remember the verse that says, if you sin, you will die? Well, God's never sinned, so that means he can't die. Jesus never sinned. That means he cannot die. Ah, then what causes his death? Our sin placed upon him that causes him to die. The only way Jesus in his 100% humanity could experience death was to take your sin. Otherwise, he would have just gone back to heaven. But it's the very reason why he could get up again, isn't it? When he paid for your sin and died, that's the payment taken care of, written across, paid in full. Okay, I can get up now. And with that, three days later, after he visits hell, unlocks a few doors, opens a few jails, you read about it in Luke and all the people come rushing out. He comes back to life and says, I'm back, boys. Let's have some fish on the beach. And he feeds them 153 fish. Okay, that's amazing. Who counted that? 153 fish, John tells us. And they have fish on the beach. Now, that's the Jesus I want to follow, the one that goes fishing, not the one holding the little lamb. I want the bloke that catches the fish. If he were not God, though, his death would not have had an infinite value to pay the price for mine and your sin. 
You've got to put that together. If he was not God, his death would not have had an infinite value to pay the price of yours and my sin. So in becoming a human, Jesus had to retain every essential attribute of his godliness so you and I could be saved. Yeah, I want more of those amens. Because that's why you're sitting here. That's why you're here going, teach me this. You came for a meal this morning, you've just got it. Okay, now it might be one of those big baked dinners that you're struggling to chew on. But that's important. Because even if you don't know it, if it's too heavy, don't worry. You can experience it without truly understanding it. That's where you live. Let me close with this verse. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's me, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, came, took your sin to the cross, rose again, and he goes, out, devil, I now have the victory over you and my people have the victory over you. They also can rise from the dead and we get to live forever. That's what makes him God's ideal man and man's ideal God. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you for all that you've done. It is a big concept. It's beyond our brains. It explodes our brains in some sense. But the truth is there. The reality is there. You do not lie to us. You do not take us down paths that come to dead ends. In fact, you want us to live in the truth of it and find the life in it. And we want you to take us on that journey. Allow us to live in this truth that you, Almighty God, can be honoured and glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray.